Okay, this is Jonathan with LimitlessMindset.com, and this is my book review of The Man Who Risked It All with Lauren Gurnell. Is that how you say his name? Lauren Gurnell. Lauren Gurnell. Did I nail the French, the nuances of the French pronunciation of surnames? Oh my god. Say Lohan. Lohan? Lohan. 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 I'm gonna let you. It's an ah. It's a French ah. It's that ah. That, that, <laughs> that, that gurgling back of the throat sound that us Anglos are really not very good at. And that is my wife there, and she is going to be joining me for this book review and not distracted playing on her phone the entire time. I'm not playing with my phone. Are we live? Yes, 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 yes. I'm going to... Okay, thank you. Thank mm-hmm. you. I appreciate you chit-chatting with the listeners as we are doing this podcast. Let's so... So this book is an entertaining and well-written novel about transformative personal development via neuro-linguistic programming techniques. My wife, sitting next to me here, enthusiastically recommended that I read this book about a man's inspirational hero's journey from suicidal despair to personal and corporate victory. Often fiction is a better medium than nonfiction for impactfully teaching philosophy. And this book will go on my short list of must-read fiction for personal development pragmatists, along with Memoir from Ant Proof Case and Atlas Shrugged, I think. So I'll quote here from the book's uh, back cover blurb. Looking down from the Eiffel Tower, Alan Grenmore stands on the edge, determined to end it all. As he prepares to jump, his thoughts are interrupted by a cough. To his right is a mysterious stranger in a dark suit, smoking a cigar. This is Eve Dubroy. Did I say his name right? Yes. Eve Dubroy. The person who will change Alan's life. Dubroy convinces Alan to reconsider his plans with one caveat. Instead of ending his life, he will give his life over to Dubroy. In return... Debroy promises to teach Alan the secrets to happiness and success. And so Alan embarks on a wild ride of self-discovery from a humiliating fiasco at a Parisian bakery to finding the strength to assert himself in his company's bedroom. Alan learns to overcome his deepest fears and self-doubts, face life's unexpected twists and turns, take crazy risks, and fully accept himself in the process. From the best-selling author, how do I say his name again, babe? Laurent Gounel. The man who risked it all explores the 
fragility of life and the possibilities that are presented to us in the unlikeliest of circumstances. So the book starts with this young man, Alan, raised by a single mother, and he is kind of a loser who goes through a series of personal development adventures. And what I liked about it is that the book emphasizes the primacy of action in one's personal growth. No action, no transformation. That's kind of the, the, the golden rule of personal development, if you will. Let's talk about mentorship. So the book centers around the relationship between Alan and Eve, or Igor, as he's called later on in the book. And this is his enigmatic, wealthy, and mercurial mentor, Babe. Do you know what mercurial means? Mercurial? Mercurial. Mm, no one like me. Okay. Mercurial. Almost nobody knows what this word means. So this is <laughs> this is our vocabulary item of the item of the day. Uh, just like you taught me in a, a vocabulary item of the day in Bulgarian. So mm-hmm. mercurial means someone who has a kind of a personality that shifts quite a bit, like a a personality where they're going to be like really friendly one moment and then they're going to kind of change a whole lot. Emotional shape-shifting. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I found with uh, the character De Broy. I found that he would, he'd be kind of like, he'd be like really nice and helpful and almost kind of compassionate in some scenes, but then he'd be like really kind of mean and tough on Alan in preceding scenes, you know? Mm -hmm. I'll quote from the book here. The moment has come for the disciple to free himself from his master. You can easily understand, Catherine, that there's a paradox in giving someone, in guiding someone toward freedom by leading them by the hand all the way. Strict control was necessary because it made him do what he would never have done otherwise. But now he must free himself from my control to become really free. Reality, in another passage, reality sometimes takes the shape of a terrifying dragon that disappears when you dare to look at it head on. Spurred on by Igor, I had mastered the dragons in my mind and it now seemed to be inhabited by benevolent angels. In the book, Alan receives devoted mentorship from this older gentleman who lives in a opulent mansion in Paris. Young men struggling in their career or love life often have this fantasy that a wise mentor will come along take them under their wing, and show them how to get just what they want. While this may seem fanciful, it happens in real life. When you start your, when you start taking your personal development seriously, when you start taking a lot of action towards what you really want in life, even if sometimes it's kind of a 
foolhardy action that you're taking. Uh, in this serendipitous world, you'll run into, you'll encounter a mentor that you can that you can learn from. So it's not this this whole idea of when the student is ready, the master will appear. This is a theme that we see like repeated mm-hmm. over and over and over in fiction. It's not, it's not totally fictional. This is one of these kind of things about the world that makes me say that perhaps our lives are novels that are written by God or written by some alien author that's out there. Because when you take action, serendipity will often deliver to you what you really need in life. Uh, but the the master mentor that you need is often cloaked and often appears to be something else. Like in my case, uh, at the beginning of my entrepreneurial career, when I was a really young man, I had those two anti-mentors. You know, I had oh, yeah. those two... People that I wrote about there in the final chapter of my book, and they they hired me. They gave me an opportunity. They uh, paid me uh, very very handsomely for for my time. Um, so there was opportunity. There was certainly opportunity involved there. But they were anti mentors. They showed me they showed me just how addiction, mental illness. Hedonism, hubris, and lies could ruin even the most well-funded of endeavors. They they were mentors, but they were uh, not exactly the the mentors that anyone would ask for. But they came into my life when I started becoming open to opportunity. Let's talk about mindset. The book has a couple of passages on mindset that I'll quote. You know. One can see life as a series of pitfalls to be avoided or as a vast playground that offers enriching experiments at every street corner. When you meditate on revenge, you feel an energy that is admittedly very stimulating, but it is a negative, destructive energy, one that pulls you down. There are limits to what we're capable of doing says Alan. And then his mentor responds, the only limits are the ones we give ourselves. The person who obeys rules avoids thinking. If you think outside the box, the only solutions you'll find are those that everyone else has already thought of. You have to think outside of the box. The book also describes the process of of daily journaling to recalibrate your reticular activating system to find evidence of new mindsets. And here it is. Every evening, you must take two minutes to think of the day that has just passed and write down three things that you have achieved and are proud of. And so in the book, the character utilizes a real classical mindset transformation tool, which is that you uncover a more empowering mindset 
And while you may be able to believe that mindset in a in a intellectual sense, you need to start to recalibrate your mind to detect that particular mindset a whole lot more and to search for evidence in the world that you perceive of a new mindset for it to be ingrained further in the way that you live. And journaling, daily journaling is a really consistent, effective way to do it. I think everybody should experiment with that. Let's talk about body language mirroring. Uh, body language is one of the first things that many people learn about in their personal growth journey. Quote, when you are synchronizing with the other's postures, you must respect a certain lapse of time following his movements so he doesn't feel mimicked. And... A lot of people have experienced this. You learn, you start reading a little bit about body language, maybe you watch some YouTube videos about body language, and they say, what you want to do is you want to go and mirror whatever the person that you're interacting with is doing with their hands, with their eyes, with their posture, and you're going to create a bit more uh, you're going to create a, a bit more commonality. You're going to create a bit more affinity with that person. And so you go out there and you do it. But if you exactly mirror their body language, if you do the exact same body language thing with them, if you're like copying them move for move, it comes across as disingenuous. It comes across as kind of weird. So De Bruyne describes to him, you want to mere body language, but do it with a do it with a lapse. So it's not quite obvious. That way, what you're doing is you end up communicating on kind of like a subconscious level with the other person. And uh, Alan Grenmore reports, he says, I had managed to create a bond with a stranger and force him to open himself to me. I marveled at the power of gesture over the unconscious, the superiority of the body over the word. The book also has a public speaking training in it. Do you remember this part? Public speaking training. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Okay. One of the higher leverage personal growth skills is public speaking. And taking public speaking classes really is a commonality among people who do cool things and live life on their own terms. In the book, public speaking skills are key to the protagonist's accelerated personal and professional success. Talking about public speaking classes... They're not lessons. Each member trains by diving into the deep end with a talk of 10 or so minutes on a topic of his choice. After that, the others write feedback on bits of paper, which are then given to the speaker. Feedback? Yes. Information about his performance. Comments about his little defects, his tics, his imperfections, everything. In short, that can be improved, whether it's his voice, his posture, or the structure of his talk. And this this is something I hope me and you can do one day, is go to uh, public speaking, like Toastmasters mm, classes. I was thinking about Toastmasters. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe one day we can do that. Yeah, it's kind of interesting... Uh, okay, I'll, you do 
a short, you, you do some speeches. I believe everybody has the chance to speak publicly in every class. And the classes are relatively small. So you're not going to be extremely nervous about speaking to 200 people. And you do a bit of extemporaneous speaking where you are just making making stuff up essentially or you just have you know maybe five minutes of preparation before doing a speech and then there's also people every class session there's at least one person that comes in who has a prepared talk and they talk a little bit longer I think they do like something like a 15 or maybe a 20 minute talk. So something maybe a little bit more similar to a TED talk, but you only have one of those per class because it takes a bit more preparation and seems to me the classes last maybe like 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. People often ask me if I have public speaking training and I attended a couple of these classes in Kiev, Ukraine, of all places. But other than that, I don't have much formal training. You'll meet people out there that have done Toastmasters for like five, ten years. I, I don't have nearly that much training in it. What has really honed uh, my public speaking skills has been video blogging. Video blogging mm -hmm. is... It's pretty amazing for your communication skills. If you don't have the time or the inclination to do public speaking uh, training classes or do like a social dynamics boot camp, the, the highest leverage way that people can level up their communication skills, public speaking skills, is just to get in front of a webcam or, or, the, or even their smartphone camera and just do video blogs with some frequency and they'll, they'll get a lot better at communicating. Speaking about communicating, the book also discusses what's called frame control. And so De Broy is giving him some advice for negotiating with his, with his boss. And so he says, faced with unfounded criticism, torture him by asking him questions. What do you mean exactly? Alan responds. De Broy clarifies. Rather than justifying yourself, ask him questions to make him justify himself and don't let it go. It's for him to provide proof of, of his criticisms, not for you to prove they're unfounded. So what they're kind of saying is that when people are giving you criticisms, what you can kind of do is... It's called uh, uh, reduce it to the absurd, is I think uh, what people call it, is you ask people for just more and more details. Like if someone, oh, like let's let's say, what's, what's an example of this? Okay, the other day someone was on minds.com and they, they gave me a rude comment, right? And they said, uh, like, I need psychological help. Mm -hmm. Or something like that? Was, was that their comment? Yeah, that you need psychological help. Need to go see a shrink or something. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So what I so what I could do if I was dealing with that sort of criticism in like a professional setting or 
or or if I if I actually needed to address that sort of criticism and I was going to use the frame control technique, what I would do is I would ask the guy, ba I would respond back. I'd say something like, well, I'm very concerned with my psychological health. So can you clarify what what is my psychological issue? I, I need some examples from you of where you see me psychologically, you know, uh, being unhealthy. And then the guy would be like, uh, uh, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. And well, then someone actually, someone has asked him questions right underneath his, um, <laughs> his comment that you need psychological help. And he, he hasn't responded yet. Aha, uh -huh. okay. So so that particular somebody, <laughs> they have unwittingly, they've unwittingly used the uh, life hack described right here mm -hmm. in the book. If frame control interests you, you'll want to check out my article, which is 24 practical examples of frame control. And I do link that in the article that is going to be linked below this podcast, wherever you're listening to it. Let's talk about theory versus practice. Now, Alan and his mentor in the book don't spend much time delving into Alan's dysfunctional psychology. His mentor is not his shrink. His mentor is a pragmatic practitioner of NLP. He suggests to Alan new and empowering mindsets and then he sends Alan on missions to experience and enshrine, the, enshrine them in his personality. For example, Alan has this annoying this neighbor, an old lady that kind of bullies him uh, about the totally... Babe, you'll have to respond to those comments. Uh, an old lady that bullies him about the totally reasonable amount of noise that he makes in his Paris flat. His mentor teaches him that he must establish frame control with his neighbor by doing something shocking and bold. So hilariously, one day when his neighbor nags him, he opens his door totally naked and says, Madame Blanchard, how lovely to see you. <laughs> Remember that section? Oh, yeah. The book, in a subtle way, is about the showdown between two diametrically opposed schools of philosophy of psychology and personal change. Do you remember what the schools, what the two schools are that are having a showdown in the book that are in competition with each other that are described? The two schools, one was maybe the Russian school? <laughs> Not exactly. De Broglie ended up being Russian. Okay, the two schools, schools of thought. You know what I mean by that? Mm -hmm. Competing ideologies, yeah, yeah, more yeah. or less. Okay. They are neuro-linguistic programming, or NLP. Uh, neuro-linguistic linguistic Programming is also often referred to as cognitive behavioral therapy, school of thought, and then the Freudian psychoanalysis school of thought. And so this book should make uh, anybody who reads it curious about NLP. And according to 
Wikipedia, NLP is uh, it's neurolinguistic programming. And according to Wikipedia, it is a pseudo-scientific approach to communication, personal development, and psychotherapy uh, psychotherapy created by Richard Bandler and John Grinder in California, United States in the 1970s. So when Wikipedia calls something pseudoscientific, it's probably something that you should be curious about. I've never undergone formal NLP instruction myself, but I think I owe a lot of my personal growth to fields that utilize a lot of NLP techniques. I started my career at a young age in 100% commission sales. It's something that really prepares you for a life of entrepreneurship. And salespeople use a lot of NLP techniques. When I was doing my sales training, different jobs that I had as a young man, I recall them teaching us uh, about empathy, about empathetic statements. Uh, I recall them teaching us about doing pace lead techniques. All of this is stuff that kind of comes out of NLP. And then I was a pickup artist for about five years. And pickup artists use all sorts of NLP techniques. And I probably would not be married to a really great woman, uh, nor have remained happily married, if it wasn't for, you know, using some of the NLP style techniques from time to time. So I am pretty positive about NLP. I think it's pretty worthwhile. I'm sure that there's something to the criticisms of NLP. You can browse the Wikipedia page if you'd like that that breaks down Wikipedia and uh, says that Wiki that NLP is awful. I'm sure that there's something to these criticisms uh, because you know when you typically when you get like a like a, like a school of personal development, some of these schools of personal development kind of become too uh, hierarchical, and they end up with uh, people kind of building these these kind of cult followings. It seems like just kind of a a natural thing when you got like personal personal growth gurus that are helping a lot of people there's this natural trend towards them like starting a cult you know because you have people that are that are growing personally that are overcoming their past that are experiencing new successes and then they want to share that share what they're doing and invite new people to become a part of their tribe and there's there's just kind of a natural like cultish hierarchical nature to the way us human beings like to organize things and so i i'm sure there's there's something to these accusations that are made about nlp but i think overall it's a pretty positive thing if I had to summarize NLP, it would mean that if you want to be something, you do that thing. If you want change and transformation, then you be the change that you want to see in the world. You're biased towards action in your personal growth. You're about ready, fire, aim as opposed to ready, aim, fire. You're about faking it until you make it. 
And in comparison to this, the book mentions Jacques Lacan, who is a prominent figure in psychoanalysis. And I'll quote from the book here. Lacan was the key figure in psychoanalysis in France. Psychoanalysis being what it is, people thought it was natural for a patient to spend 15 years on a couch talking about his problems. And it also says, but this is France. The less people understand about what you're talking about, the more you're taken for a genius. about the book's author. What's his name again? Lohan Gounel. And he is a personal development specialist who trained in humanities at the University of California, Santa Cruz, which is one of those places that is just constantly, you know, surrounded by a cloud of uh, marijuana smoke, <laughs> I can imagine. In addition to lecturing at the University of Clermont-Ferrand. He is a <laughs> consultant and leads international seminars. His three books, based on the principles of neurolinguistic programming, have sold over 300,000 copies worldwide. And so this book hints at what I believe, which is that NLP and cognitive behavioral therapy are effective tools for transformation, for living a better life, and that psychoanalysis is the pseudoscientific, time-wasting fraud. Do you remember what I told you about psychoanalysis? I think you said that it was uh, a waste of time or something. What did I tell you about Freud? That he... I, I just know that you don't really respect him a bunch. Yeah, I think Freud was a total scamming bullshit artist, uh, villain of history. So Freud, Freud's thing was, uh, first of all, his whole idea, the, the basis of a lot of his theory was that, uh, was that babies are horny. What? Right? Oh, yeah. I think you told me about this. Right, this this guy who did a bunch of cocaine, he uh, came to the conclusion that babies are really horny, but that our our horniness it travels around our body. It uh, when we're babies, we are horny in our mouths for some reason, and then our horniness eventually travels to our anus, and then it eventually travels to our genitals, where it uh, motivates us to procreate with another adult and you know, perpetuate life. And really this whole bullshit theory he came up with because in uh, the 18th century there in Vienna, they had like incredible, apparently they had a lot of problems with uh, pedophilia. They had a lot of problems with like uh, sexual abuse of young girls. Apparently this was like a big problem amongst the Viennese aristocracy. And so instead of Sigmund Freud saying, and, and so he was a psychotherapist, he was a therapist, uh, like women would come and talk to him. Mm -hmm. And so as opposed to him saying like, 
whoa, this is super wrong. We need to like call the police. We need to like have some better laws. Like we need to have some pedophiles thrown in jail Mm -hmm. instead of him like trying to stop the abuse of children and particularly I think girls. His whole thing was, let me come up with a psychological theory that explains why young girls and babies would are horny. It's just, it's so demented, but he was, uh, he was a drug addict. He was a, he was a total, he was a total sicko. And he came up with this, he came up with this whole theory that, uh, of psychoanalysis that I think really just existed to, uh, paralyze people in their growth, uh, paralyze people in their trauma so that the psychoanalyst could make money so that the psychoanalyst could just have, you know, people coming back to them every single week that needed more and more therapy. And that's what you see. There was a, this podcast that I've, I've, en- I've enjoyed it and it's called uh, Psychology in Seattle. And it's this uh, podcast that's it's it's kind of witty, it's kind of funny, and it's by uh it's this podcast hosted by these two, by these two liberal guys, these two leftist guys, and they are talking in this po- in this podcast, they detail just all these cases of uh therapists and psychologists abusing their customers. There's just endless endless examples of therapists and psychologists abusing their customers and so it's it's so common that you got to say you know it's really appropriate that the the therapist is uh you know written out it's the rapist write it write it down therapist it literally is the rapist mm-hmm. so uh so maybe there's some value in therapy but i generally think psychoanalysis is a big scam in the NLP CBT school, uh, for example, let's say there's like a guy and he's a lonely guy. He's kind of a loser. He's failing with women. He doesn't have a girlfriend. He doesn't have a wife. He can't get he can't get a date. If this guy came across a NLP instructor, the NLP instructor would say, "Okay, I'm going to teach you a seduction technique. I want you to go to a bar." And then try to talk to an attractive woman at a bar. Or it doesn't have to be a bar. It could also be a cafe. It could be a library. Or it could even be a, uh, it could even be like a shop. Like in the, in the book, right? Remember where he goes to the, the jewelry store and then he speaks to a very attractive woman in the, in the jewelry store. Mm-hmm. And so what an NLP instructor would say is he would say, go and interact with a very attractive woman if you're having problems in your love life and then disagree with every single thing she says. Like arbitrarily, just just disagree with her on everything. Like if she says, oh, it's a nice day outside, be like, ah, this weather is, is awful, terrible weather. You know, just disagree arbitrarily on everything. And so then a, a NLP student, they would go out and they would have a totally novel experience with women. If they do that, if they're like a, you can imagine the kind of guy that's like not very confident. If he goes out and then he makes it a point to just like argue with every 
with attractive women and disagree with them about everything mm-hmm. is going to be like a totally novel experience for him because he's going to be used to like just disagreeing. <laughs> he's going to be used to agreeing with women on everything, right? So it's something that'll like get them way outside of their comfort zone and immediately become more confident, immediately have like a my a uh, a mindset shift that they will that they'll never forget and so the psycho an analy- psychoanalysis school is a totally different different story than this in psychoanalysis you would take this lonely guy having problems with women and the therapy the therapist will have the lonely man sit on a couch with them and talk endlessly about his past, his traumas, his failures, and his disappointments. And the therapist will try their damnedest to dig up some dysfunctional connection between the lonely man's present failures and his relationship with his mother. That's what psychoanalysis is all about. So I really do think it is a whole lot of horseshit, which is really an insult to horseshit because horseshit can make for great uh, fertilizer, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas psychoanalysis, psychoanalysis is good for just about nothing. Moving on, this book contains, in my view, a non-hysterical critique of capitalism. So capitalism gets critiqued and criticized endlessly in mainstream movies, television, and culture, even though capitalism is clearly the best way for society to function. But really, and I'll explain why here, really the problem with capitalism is the state. It's the government. Whenever you see these really egregious examples of corporations harming people or the environment, it's almost always due to some entanglement with big government. The worst corporate behavior is often motivated by the stock market. In these numerous cases of corporate malfeasance, it's the stock market performance that motivates corporate quote-unquote, citizens to behave so psychopathically. And I linked in this article to that really great documentary that was done that was called The Corporation. And the hypothesis of the documentary, I think it was like a three-hour documentary, really interesting, was that if corporations are citizens, if corporations are people too, then they are psychopaths. Did you ever watch that documentary? No, I don't think so. It was so interesting, it would put you right to sleep. I bet. (laughs) So the book actually portrays this really well. A lot of the book is about the corporate intrigue of the French recruitment firm where the protagonist works. The firm has recently gone public on the stock exchange, which motivates the firm's management to make a bunch of short-sighted, unethical, bad decisions Bad decisions to inflate the stock price. And there's a couple of illustrative passages that I will quote from. 
Returning to my office, I passed cubicles full of employees stressed out by the ever more dehumanizing management cycle, harassed by the demands of stock market profitability, and no longer motivated by an exciting business plan. What a waste to see all these people unhappy on the job when every one of them could be fulfilled, could even bloom in their work. Next quote. This requirement for share price growth brings with it enormous pressure on everyone, from the CEO to the most recent hire. It prevents people from working properly, calmly. It encourages short-term management that's good for neither the business nor the employees nor the company's suppliers who squeezed hard will reflect that pressure back on their own employees and suppliers. We end up with companies in good health laying people off just to maintain their maintain or improve their profitability. Since the stock market exchange has become a casino, we have forgotten its prime function. And especially, we've forgotten that behind the names of the companies we gamble on, like we're playing roulette, there are people, living flesh and blood people, who work in these companies and devote much of their lives to the company's development. And in the book, the CEO of the firm drops a red pill. Here's what he says. You mustn't look for meaning where there isn't any. He said dismissively, you think that life has a meaning? The strongest and the cleverest win. That's all. They get the power and the money. And when you get the power and the money, you can have anything you want in life. It's no more complicated than that, Grenmore. The rest is intellectual masturbation. And then the CEO of the firm is also saying when the stock market price is crashing, a bunch of sheep, all of them, a crummy journalist sticks his, sticks his nose in where it doesn't belong, and all the morons incapable of thinking for themselves follow his damn fool advice and sell. As a result, the share price goes down a bit and the others rush in without thinking. Without thinking. I've long thought that the stock market is awful. Businesses and corporations would naturally be pretty benign actors because if they because they only profit in the long term if they sell a decent product that people want and are not terrible places for people to work. But the stock market creates this million or billion dollar incentive for corporate management to think only about short-term performance, to worry about how the stock is doing in three months or six months or maybe in two years. They are no longer thinking 10 years out. They stop worrying about building something to last. They stop worrying about if the company is contributing in a meaningful sense to society. They worry more about the fickle stock market investors than they do their employees and even their customers. 
one of the more recent examples of corporate idiocy that I protested was the $66 billion Bayer Monsanto merger, which I did a whole article on it that I linked to, uh, which Bayer has been harshly punished for in court. They've already had to pay out billions for lawsuits won by the victims of Monsanto's, Monsanto's cancer-causing products. I guess sometimes there actually is justice in this world. At the time of the merger, I think it was like maybe two years ago, maybe three years ago, I watched several interviews with the Bear executives, and their sentiment was, we know that this merger is very unpopular. People hate Monsanto. It's like the most hated uh, company in the world. And we're paying a ton of money for it, but, but it will deliver value fast to our shareholders. So we're going to do it. And they did it. If they weren't myopically focused on short-term stock market gains, would they have decided to merge with this vile company that does so much harm to so many people, farmers, and the ecosystem? I don't think so. And so this brings me back to my point that I made. Who do we have to thank for the perpetuation of the stock market? Well, that would be the state. The government employs floors and floors of bored bureaucrats, apathetic apparatchiks, and arrogant attorneys to quote-unquote regulate the stock market. Consistently, these regulating agencies are captured by corporate influence, and they allow and encourage the worst corporate behavior. The government also writes endless Byzantine and confusing futures trading laws without which there would be no reason for corporations to play and cheat in the global casino. Without the damn government, businesses big and small would be a whole lot more conservative, risk-averse, and honestly interested in serving their customers a good product. That's my rant on uh, that's my rant on capitalism or uh, crony capitalism and statism as people describe it. And I want to now get to the very end of the book and to the last chapter that I found just a bit silly. The only part of the book that I scoffed at was the last chapter where he is reunited with a beautiful and very cavalier young woman who broke his heart and actually drove him to suicide in the first chapter. Quote, It was a great joy to be reunited, closing the painful parenthesis of our separation. I was delighted to find she still loved me. I felt light, happy, overcome with emotion to be able once more to see her, touch her, smell her, kiss her, and we swore to never be separated again. Whatever happened? What do you have to say, babe? I have to say that you should not spoil the end for oh, no. our listeners. No, 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 I'm not. Because we... 
have at least one listener who would like to read it. Okay. Yeah, no spoilers. No. I agree. The book it has a good twist in it, and I'm not exactly. going to share what it is. So I found the last chapter totally unrealistic. Uh, if you know anything about women, especially young, beautiful women, you know that they move on fast. They fall in and out of love fast. And I would have rather seen the protagonist, you know, use his new, like, social skills uh, to end up with a new, more virtuous woman at the end of the book as a result of his growth. So in conclusion, I gave the book five stars. It's a fun, easy read that actually makes me want to visit Paris. And the book has some, some red pill truths about life, women, and the business world. Like I said, it has a great twist at the end, and I enthusiastically recommend The Man Who Risked It All to anyone passionate about taking action in their personal development. Do you have any comments on the book, babe? Well, we didn't, we didn't mention how beautiful the language is. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was very well, well it was very well, well written. It wasn't quite as clever as some books I've read. You know, some books you're just laughing at them like every other every other every other moment. But the it was written in f in French originally. Yes, in French. So guys, if you speak the language and if you can read in it without a problem, I just recommend you read it in French. But if not, the English translation is equally beautiful. Yes. Yeah. It's great. I read it in Bulgarian, actually, and I liked it, like, maybe four or five years ago. And I recommended it to my husband here, who read it for, like, maybe two weeks. Yeah, I probably knocked it out in about two weeks. Yeah, something like that. While I was reading three other books. Oh, yeah. He's promiscuous in his reading, guys. <laughs> I am, uh, what is it, panda-like? Is it the pandas? No, no, pandas aren't promiscuous. It's the other one. Koalas. It's the koalas that are that are such sluts. Yes. Those skanky koalas. I'm uh, mm -hmm. marsupial. I'm marsupial in my reading. Yeah. So um, maybe now someone will want to call in? Well, we can do that. But for the normal podcast, I will just say I'm Jonathan with Limitless Mindset. And I'm his wife. And we look forward to a continued conversation with you.